Thank you all. Well, when the planes hit the World Trade Center towers on 9-11, there were over 3,700 planes flying in U.S. airspace at the time. By noon that day, flights were grounded and there was hardly a plane in the sky. For the first time in U.S. history, all flights were canceled. Every plane was grounded. 6,600 of those grounded passengers were rerouted to Gander, Newfoundland, a town of 10,000. 6,600 people showed up at the doorsteps of 10,000 people in Gander, Newfoundland on that tragic day. And that town responded by opening their homes and arms for the next number of days. One individual described Gander in those days as a beacon of light in the dark. Residents showed the way to hope and humanity in a time of death and despair. The majority of the passengers stranded were Americans. And after their days of welcome from their billets in Gander, many have returned multiple times since to visit. One passenger said, I can only equate it to the love of a grandmother, that love that I felt in those days in Gander, Newfoundland. People flying across the country or from other countries to carry on the relationships that began in those tragic days because they were so significant. They sat together in living rooms watching horrific things take place on the television, crying together, praying together. And those people in Gander opened their homes and their lives, their kitchen fridges and cupboards to these people for days, just knowing it was the right thing to do and doing it with great joy. We're talking this morning about hospitality. And I don't think every town is exactly like Gander. And certainly every circumstance isn't like the circumstances of that day in uh, September 11th. But I would say hospitality is in some ways a dying art. Maybe it's because of our growing individualism. That we're not centered around family and community as much anymore as we are centered around self. Maybe it has to do with technology that we feel satisfied watching somebody talk to us on a TV screen that we've had some sort of an interaction when we actually haven't, or maybe using a keyboard to communicate some things fills some sort of a basic need to chat back and forth, or even FaceTime or Skype back and forth, and yet very little, in reality nothing replaces the deep longing in every human heart deeply know and be deeply known, to deeply love and to be deeply loved, to walk with people in life daily, deeply, richly. And yet, if we're honest, hospitality is this dying thing. We were talking about this topic as a staff recently, and, and we were kind of reminiscing about going to church as kids. And, you know, my mom would always set the timer on the oven and hope that the timer flipped on to make the roast 
And, you know, many of us on staff would talk about, yeah, our families would, in, you know, pick people to, new at the church to invite home for lunch that same day. And it was just sort of the pattern of church life as kids that we seemed to experience and was very common. And as we reflected, thought, oh, it's not, I don't do that. Do you do that? No, you don't do that? Okay. It just isn't happening as much anymore. Hospitality, by definition, is the practice of receiving and extending friendship to strangers. Hospitality is bringing the stranger in. Hospitality is the relational, hospitable process of going from strangers to friends. Well, um, we would say that hospitality has more to do with strangers and fellowship has more to do with those we know well. I'm going to make a case, I would argue this morning, that Christian hospitality and Christian fellowship are actually more broad where we get more narrow and is more inclusive where we tend to get more exclusive. Hospitality is having to do with hosting in our home and fellowship is having to do with gathering wherever that may be to have that common space. But we often think, unfortunately, of hospitality as something we do for our closest friends and family and some really awesome person we'd really like to get to know. But Christian hospitality is actually welcome, food, lodging, and fellowship for any and every brother and sister in Christ. It's more to the stranger than to the favorites. Hospitality is mentioned seven times in the hospitable Hospitality, those two words are used seven times in the New Testament. Uh, But there are, of course, additionally dozens and dozens of references to meeting in homes, meeting around the table, um, ministry in that kind of a context. In fact, in the qualifications listed for elders, those who lead in the church, found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you know what one of the qualifications that must be present for someone to be qualified as elder in the church a hospitable person, they must display hospitality. Seems almost odd. And yet, the Bible wants to make clear that it may be dying in our society, but it ought not die in the lives of Christians. We're continuing a series called One Anothering, and in this series we're looking at what it means to be the church, to be a church family. All these one another um, encouragements in the New Testament are towards fellow believers, and it starts to paint a picture of what the, the church ought to look like. And, 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 part, and it ought to be, when we add up all these one another's that we are to be faithful in, it actually looks quite compelling, and it actually looks quite distinct. So as I say that hospitality may be a dying art, I say on the other hand, it ought not be for the local church. In fact, the world ought to see our culture, our city ought to see the practice of hospitality thriving as much as it ever has and in distinctly Christian ways today. And we have an opportunity for that to look quite distinct as it's becoming more and more rare. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn it to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter's towards the end of the Bible. It comes after James, and wouldn't you know it, right before Second Peter. And uh, we're going to look at First Peter chapter 4. I'll read it for you. Like I said, there's seven references to hospitality in the New Testament, plus many that don't 
actually use the word, but we're going to focus ourselves a little bit on 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Here's the text we'll look at. It'll be on the screen as well. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, prayer, love, hospitality, oracles, service, that everything God, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. On the back of your bulletin and on the screen, you'll see a roadmap of where we're going. And here are the points this morning. Um, The first is this. Christians are hospitable because Jesus is hospitable to us. Christians are hospitable. Because Jesus is hospitable to us. Secondly, hospitality is a God-ordained path for evangelism. Hospitality is a God-ordained path for evangelism. It's the second reason. It's another another area of of hospitality that is really significant. Third, our affection for one another is rooted in Christ, not one another. I'm cheating a little bit this morning because there's so many one another passages in the New Testament that I'm, I'm lumping a couple together this morning. Be hospitable to and greet one another, which follows in, in uh, 1 Peter 5:14. And so we're going to lump those together because they have some common traits. And so we'll look at that thirdly. But first, Christians are hospitable because Jesus is hospitable to us. This text we're looking at this morning, just by way of clarification, begins with these words. The end of all things is at hand. Um, that language starts makes some of us uncomfortable a little bit. We start to think about Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage in End Times movies. And it, right, and it starts to feel a little bit weird. And people start having rapture conversations and all sorts of stuff. But what I want you to see is that Peter is saying the end is coming. It just is. The end is at hand and you need to go about being ready for Christ's return. What he means by the end being at hand is this. Um, It's it's talking about um, uh, redemptive history. See, God created everything perfectly and then sin entered the world through humanity. God made a covenant with Abraham that became a covenant with Israel. Israel, and then God continues in redemptive history to, to work and to break into the brokenness, and so he sends Jesus, and so the incarnation happens, Jesus' life happens, Jesus' death happens, his resurrection happens, the ascension happens, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit, and the church uh, age begins. All of that is to say that all ties into redemptive history and all of those things are done or, you know, and, and the spirit continues to move and God continues to use the church and the only thing left is Christ's return. And so we are in the last days because there's nothing left to take place but for Christians to go about being Christians, the church to go about being the church, the Holy Spirit to move in the midst of those things and when the time comes... Christ will return. And so we are in the last days for that very reason. And so 
Uh, Paul's, Peter, Peter's story is bringing it so often it's Paul, you can just go with it. But in this case, Peter is saying, um, look, focus, focus your life. Christ is coming back and you need to give yourselves to the important things. And he starts talking about prayer, which we've looked at in this series. Pray for one another. Be sober-minded on account of your prayers. Have a prayer relationship with the one who's coming because you're going to look at him face-to-face when he does. Have, re- have that prayer relationship with Jesus because Jesus is coming again and it's the most important relationship. Also, keep loving one another earnestly, he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another. This just reiterates where we've been going, but it's right in the same context of what it looks like to be the church. Keep loving one another earnestly in these last days till Christ returns. Go about loving each other exceptionally well in the church since love covers a multitude of sins, he says. Now, at first glance, I just got to clarify this quickly. At first glance, when it says that you should, we should love each other earnestly because it covers a multitude of sins, we often look at that and go, oh, so if we just love really well, God will be really gracious to us. So we need for just a moment to say, okay, no, wait, Scripture needs to interpret Scripture here. We are saved by grace through faith and there's no other means by which we can be saved. That's how we're saved. Faith in Jesus and his work is how we receive grace. So what does it mean then that our, our sins will be covered if we love well? Well, here's what it means. It, it, it's talking at this level, not this level. When we love each other really, really well and then one of us um, does something that bothers or hurts Another, when we're already loving well, in that context, it's quite easy to forgive. In that context, it's, it, 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 we're able to overlook the wrongs we commit to one another because, well, we love, I know we love each other. But here's the thing, when we're not earnest in our love for one another and we wrong each other, where love is lacking, suspicion, misunderstanding, and conflicts arise because we don't trust that that person's for us. But when we continue in these last days to earnestly love one another, even when we sin before each other, love covers a multitude of sins. And so we love each other well, knowing that we will hurt each other from time to time. But in the context of loving community, we can continue to press on and forgive, move on. And then we get to the heart of the matter. Um, be hospitable to one another without grumbling, it says. I love how he goes from pray, love each other, and then he, he gets almost even more practical. Be hospitable to one another. Like, right, love the foreigner, love the stranger, love the person you don't know well, have them in your home. Like, it's just getting really specific. Um, one context for hospitality a lot of times is food. Can we talk about food for a few minutes? Everybody all right with that? This is the second service, right? So, uh, for, or the, you know, when it gets a little bit later, especially, we're all, we're all ready to start talking about food. So uh, Tim Chester wrote a book I love called A Meal with Jesus. And uh, in, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, he just talks about the significant ministry that happened in Jesus' earthly ministry in his life that happened around the table. Think of all the significant times that when Jesus sat with sinners and saints, Pharisees and tax collectors and prostitutes, the ministry that took place, and it all kind of culminates in, in the Last Supper where his body is the bread and his blood is the cup. He pours his life out for the sake of the meal 
of his disciples. And he says in this book, consider for a moment what happens at the feeding of the 5,000. God provides fish and bread on a massive scale. From a few to many, feeds 5,000, and there's more leftovers than there were the amount of things to start with. Or think about the wedding at Cana. Jesus turns perhaps 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine, quality wine. Mennonites are feeling uncomfortable right now. Are we talking about large amounts of wine right now? Are we actually doing this? I'm just quoting the Bible. At the beginning of the Bible story, the first thing God does for humanity is present us with a menu. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. This is Genesis 2.8. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. From the beginning, God hospitably created a space for Adam and Eve to be comfortable, to be cared for, to have plentiful food their needs to be met at the end of the bible story god set before sets before us a perpetual feast god likes doing the catering he thinks food is a good thing there are some parables that jesus tells about heaven about the kingdom for all eternity and you know what how he chooses to articulate it it's like a great banquet it's like the feast of feasts that's what heaven's going to be like. Food is a good thing. You know what God considers an even better thing? You. Imago Dei. God created and he created and he created and then he made only one type of creation in his image. People. There's no Imago Dei going on in cows. There's no Imago Dei going on in cauliflower. There's only Imago Dei going on in you, people, made in his image, right? The jewel of his creation. But I really think that there's something significant from beginning to end in the scriptures about combining people with food in the context of hospitality that is really significant. Something profound about the combination of the two and and that space around the table is a very significant one. For Christians in the early church, they got this. uh, The shared meal was such a powerful sign of their mutual love for Christ that they became known as love feasts, as Jude puts it. Sounds a little weird. I don't know if I would RSVP to an invitation to a love feast, but that's the way that the church described it. And here's the reason they called it a love feast. Let's just define so it seems less weird. Um, It was called a love feast because these were the people that Jesus revealed his love to. They knew they were people loved by Jesus. And then they got together with people who knew they were loved by Jesus and they gave themselves to loving each other well. So they went to a common meal, but what made it a love feast was that they knew and expressed and lived in light of being loved by Jesus and loving one another. And so they just became known as love feasts. It wasn't like turkey dinner. The church didn't go to turkey dinners. The church went to love feasts. The reason they called it the love feast was because the greatest thing about the gathering was the the love they had for one another and the love that they received from Christ and gave back to him in joyful response. That was the context where communion, the Lord's Supper, was, was first had in the local church as they would have these love feasts and as part of it they would break bread, pour the cup, and they would remember the sacrifice of Jesus in that context. 
Um, and yet when 1 Corinthians 11 comes along, the mingling of the two has already become complicated already in Scripture with one person remaining hungry and another getting drunk. Some people who arrive to the love feast early have everything that's there, and some who arrive late, there's nothing left for them, and people have mishandled not only these feasts that were to be about love for one another, but they've mishandled the Lord's Supper as well. And so they often began to be separated with the tradition of the love feast beginning to disappear in later centuries. But can I say this morning, I think it's time to bring back the love feast. I think it's time to, to really do both of these things well, to be a people who are intentional about bringing people in, drawing people in, welcoming the stranger, giving them a context to no longer be a stranger, but to become a friend. We open our homes, as I say in the first point, because our hearts have been opened to Jesus, and our hearts have been opened to Jesus because his heart has opened to us. In 1 John 3.16 it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We can either, when we're told to be hospitable at church, we can either start looking on Pinterest at how to make the table perfect, start grabbing the Mary, uh, Martha Stewart Living magazines off the shelf at the grocery store, and it, right, I just got to do this well. I got to be a good, I got to be the hostess with the mostess here, or whatever. I don't know. Like we look at hospitality sometimes as this thing we've got to do, we got to get done, and now we're responsible for it. And good Christians are hospitable, and or we look at what Jesus has done. We look at the love that he has lavished upon us. We make our inspiration not that we're supposed to or not just what good hospitality looks like around us, but we actually find our inspiration in the fact that Jesus feeds us with the gospel satisfying our hungry hearts. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness, covering our filthy rags and our spiritual nakedness. Jesus greets us not as strangers or as subordinates, but he greets us as friends. And Jesus prepares a table for us at the great banquet because our future will be a feast. A feast where Luke 12:37 tells us that Jesus will serve at. Jesus will come around serving us at that great feast. And I think it's in that kind of a context and it's through that kind of a lens that we can actually respond to what Peter's saying in 1 Peter 4.9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, he says. Um, we can do one of two things here. We can work on behavior modification or focus on what Jesus has done for us and minister out of a transformed heart out of a transformed life what motivates grumble free hospitality because i should or because jesus did see there's just no way around it you ever you ever hosted people for a little while and after they've been there a couple days you just you're with your spouse in the kitchen just quietly like what, what are they still doing what are they still doing here when are they, right, and you start to like have the murmur and the grumble. I was already meeting with some people after the first service here, and they were like, yeah, we were grumbling last night about needing to be 
hospitable. We have something coming up. We were, we were grumbling a lot about it last night, right? Like it's, a, it's easy to go there. It's just another thing added to the plate of a busy life that we think we need to be hospitable. How in the world do we do it without grumbling? Well, hospitality without grumbling is a sign of Christian love because Jesus has been so hospitable to us. We take our cues from there. A life that has been touched by the hospitality of Jesus freely and quickly extends hospitality to others. We'll come back to that a little bit more later on, but let's get to the second point. We are certainly to be hospitable to one another, and versus, uh, that, that's inside of the church, and Galatians 6.10 gives us reason for that. It says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But it doesn't end there. Hospitality is also an avenue for mission. Hospitality, again, means meeting the stranger at the gate and bringing the stranger in. When the gates closed in an old city, um, people within the city could go and see if there were foreigners, travelers there, and if they needed a place to stay. When there were not inns in a town, People would go to the gate, look if there was someone who needed a place, and bring that person into their home and give them lodging and food and protection. That was the context by which hospitality is speaking into. The literal New Testament Greek word for hospitality means love of strangers. Because it's love of strangers and not simply a command towards one another, we can see that hospitality is a God-ordained path for evangelism. I've mentioned Rosaria Champagne Butterfield before, partly because saying her name is fun. But a year ago, uh, my wife and I went and saw her speak. She's written a couple books. Um, Saw her speak, and she spoke about hospitality. It was really the thrust of what she was speaking about. She has a really interesting story. Um, She was in a committed lesbian relationship was um, on a 10-year track uh, professorship in English uh, at Syracuse University. Uh, she um, really um, began to only explore Christianity because of this pastor and his wife that she couldn't understand. They just extended hospitality to her, and as they did, had really real conversations with her. And she could dispute things in the Bible that she was reading, because she was starting to read the Bible at that time, or say how foolish she thought something was in, in the scriptures. And they listened well. They cared well. They didn't view her as a project. They viewed her as a neighbor and a friend, and yet they were Christians. And so they desired to engage in this with her. And so she would say what a joke she thought certain things about Christianity were, or Christians were, or the Bible was. And, and, and they would just softly, warmly over the table and move to the sofa, just have conversations about these things. Eventually, she found the truth claims in the Bible to be correct and gave her life to Jesus. But she looks back at this time when, at the, with her partner at the time in this homosexual community. She says, and she, she tells churches this now, that they really know how to do hospitality. The homosexual community knows how to do hospitality incredibly well because they are outsiders to many people and they need a place to be an insider. And so Rosaria, before she came to faith, her and her partner, every Thursday night, opened the door of their home to anybody, gay, straight, 
a neighbor who just wanted to have a visit, somebody who was utterly broken. Whatever it was, every Thursday night their home was open and every night of the week in that community, there was an open door for the homosexual community there for support, for love. She goes around and she tells the church, it's to our great shame that we don't do this as well as some others. And sometimes we need to take a cue from those who get it and sacrificially do it and make our living rooms as Christians safe spaces for the believer, for the non-believer, for the life group member, for the coworker, right? Whatever, just to have that space for real talk about struggles, hurts, pains. Hear Christianity talked about and engaged with. What would it look like if our homes were known as places of refuge? That when our neighbors, coworkers, people God has put in our life are suffering and struggling, that they would know that we are safe spaces. Is there anything in your life that indicates that to them? That only happens if we create them so. Jesus had no place to rest his head. He had no home when he... uh, did his earthly ministry. And so here's Jesus' approach. He was walking down the road one day and there was a little man in a, in a sycamore tree. And Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And I find that really significant. Je- Jesus wasn't, didn't just climb up the sycamore tree and have like a quick conversation with Zacchaeus there. Z- Jesus wanted to have time in the living room, time around the table. He called Zacchaeus down, put him in a comfortable place and said, I want to meet with you there. And by the time Jesus and Zacchaeus were finished visiting, Zacchaeus was no longer Zacchaeus, the most hated man in town, tax collector who ripped off his fellow Jews. Zacchaeus was a changed man who was now giving more money back to people he had cheated than he had taken in the first place. He was absolutely different. He had encountered Jesus and Jesus came down to his level and met with him there. I want to quote two men from you here, and I want to engage these a little bit. Mark Dever, firstly, it'll come on the screen, says, I think, that, I think we can easily underestimate the difference between the casual interactions of this world and the casual interactions of genuine Christians. Um, what he's saying there, he's talking in the context of hospitality and saying by simply inviting some of your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends alike and just having conversation you don't maybe realize it, but it will look distinct. If That's what we believe about being Christians is that it, it, it fills every part of us. As disciples of Jesus, we take our discipleship everywhere we go. And so as people who don't know Jesus hear Christians living and talking through struggles and difficulties and talking through relationships and just doing life together, it's incredibly informative to people who don't know Jesus. I talked about this uh, recently when I told you about Pastor Eldon's mom when she was diagnosed with cancer years ago and a few people from the church met in her living room to pray for her. One man brought a, a, a friend who wasn't a believer and that man became a Christian because they, he saw this Christian community loving each other well. He saw something he couldn't find anywhere else on the planet 
people given to sacrificial love, laying hands on, praying for, crying over, loving each other so deeply that it had impact. I think we underestimate our casual interactions as genuine Christians, bringing our faith into every context. Timothy Keller also says, seekers today need to not only get a body of content, seekers being people kind of exploring faith to some level, Seekers today need to not only get a body of content, but also see Christianity embodied in individuals and a community. They need a space to be able to come along. Look, from like nothing to church on Sunday is a little bit intense. By God's grace, some people come and some people hear the word. And if that's you this morning, praise God. I'm really glad you're here and I hope it feels welcoming. But what it, for most people, that, that's a pretty big jump. And so this opportunity to use hospitality as mission, opening our homes, asking them about their lives, talking about ours, living as Christians in that context is really, really helpful and is really probably the primary way in which we can point people to Jesus. If those statements by Mark and Timothy are true, uh, Deborah and Keller, not biblical writers, If their statements are true, and I believe they are, hospitality is the ideal path for those who don't believe to come to faith, to hear about Jesus. See, Jesus welcomed the outsiders to the table with the insiders. Do you? We love our safe spaces, but sometimes we love our safe spaces so much that we don't welcome the outsider because they're probably just not safe enough. And look, we need to use wisdom around this and... Um, and yet, I think we use that as an excuse a lot of times to not let the, well, the outsider in at the table. But we need to. And if we want to be like Jesus, oh, we need to. See, bringing those who don't know Jesus along on our journey with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, in our homes, around our tables, into our lives, not as projects, but as people God has put in our neighborhoods and workplaces, to love no matter what. As we invite them into our worlds, we give them the opportunity to see the difference that Jesus makes. So after these first two points, I kind of just want to make a couple of quick asides. Here's the first one. At this point, some of you are probably feeling overwhelmed to feel like you need to have an open door and home might sound daunting at this stage in life with maybe some of the things you're going through. I want to just stop and say, know that Jesus called people who were weary and burdened down to come to him and he would give them rest. It's okay to rest sometimes. It's okay to take a week, a month, a year off in open home ministry. Okay, I I need you to hear that. Jesus provides rest to you. I want to say also that Jesus calls us to rest in his finished work that he accomplished on our behalf and the time will come maybe it's now maybe it's soon maybe it's when diapers are out of the picture I don't know but the time is coming to be people at rest who provide sanctuary of rest for others Jesus actually provides us with the kind of rest that we can pour out ministry to others so lean on his rest for a while until you feel recuperated and begin, can begin to pour out of, of the rest that he gives, sanctuaries of rest for others. I encourage you to foster the spaces of your living room and dining room as ministry centers 
we gathered on Sunday to celebrate the grace of God and then we scatter to, to ministry all week long in the places that God has put us. The other sort of practical thing I'd like to say at this point is maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're struggling with sin. Another reason for community and open homes is for the very fact that there are times when some of us feel like there's no one fighting the good fight with us and we need people to fight it for us. We need people to struggle with us or to pray over us and we just feel like we're alone and not really a part of the body. My friends, as you have opportunity to have open invitations to people in the body of Christ, people in your lives to say, hey, if you need a prayer, my home is open. Just to extend whatever works in your context, that opportunity, right? Is another thing I would uh, urge from the word. Thirdly, let's jump. Let's jump to this last point of greeting one another. You can see it in 1 Peter 5, a chapter later in verse 14. It says, greet one another with the kiss of love. In Romans 16, 16, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches greet you. In 1 Corinthians 16, 20, it says, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Okay, what I'd like you to do is turn to a neighbor. And uh, we're going to, no, no. And it's going to get super weird in here. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So there's two things going on. Here's the first thing. There's something really cultural going on. Here's the second thing. There's something that needs to continue going on for all time. The thing that needs to continue going on for all time is that we ought to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, show warm affection towards one another. The cultural piece is that they did that in this context with holy kisses. And that just doesn't fly here. Gets you arrested here. Um, we actually can hear this. A few weeks ago, we watched an update from Tyler and Cheryl Scholes. They're missionaries of ours in Burundi. And uh, one of their little daughters was sort of giggling about, think, thinking about uh, the fact that when her dad talks with Burundians, it's common like, for, for them to hold each other's hands as they talk. And so uh, his daughter thought it was funny that she would see her dad holding a Burundian man's hand as they would talk, or even as they would walk, they'd walk holding hands, um, because it was just a sign of affection and it, it, it sounds a little silly to us, but you know what Tyler's doing? He's being a good missionary. He stood and said, okay, there's a timeless thing in the scriptures that says be warm, be affectionate, greet one another well. In the Bible, it's with holy kisses. For us, it might be a firm handshake. It might be a side hug. I don't know. But what I know for sure, it's looking somebody in the eyes with eyes that are truly smiling with genuine warmth in your voice and welcoming each brother, each sister, genuinely greeting them well. Did you know, we, we, uh, Pastor Gary and Eldon told our, our front door ministry this recently, all the people who greet and everything, that there's six minutes that are most critical for first-time visitors in the church. You know what those six minutes are? I assume they'd be the beginning and, and end of the sermon because, right? it's the first three minutes and the last three minutes of their, their morning at the church. How were they greeted? And were they acknowledged well on their way out? It's really interesting. People are longing for those connections. And we, it ought to feel different in the church than it does at the Rotary Club. It just ought to. 
It ought to look different in the church than at the convention you go to for work. I hear to, to, to your affirmation from many people that, that come to settle in at Central that I felt like family. It felt so warm here. And I, I say that to affirm you. You do this really well. I also simply want to highlight something that we ought to give ourselves to, all of us, and that is just warmly, genuinely greeting each other. Greeting each other with the love that we have experienced from Jesus and the commonality that we have in Jesus. Where we get this wrong, I think, is focusing it on the likability of the person in front of us. We have this subjective grid sometimes that we have for those we personally accept and let in. So depending on who's in front of me is how I will greet them. And so we'll be exuberant and say, hey, my favorite person in the world. And then, and then we'll walk over to someone else and be like, hey, what's up? Yeah. But because we just, right, we have this grid of, 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 of who we welcome. The Christian view is not subjective, it's objective. Do we have Jesus in common? If so, we are brother or we are sister in Christ, we are family, and our greetings to one another are genuine, comfortable, and warm, and we give ourselves to that. To close, we, we, we summarize all of this by most namely looking to Jesus, not simply instructions to do these things. Jesus came into our world to welcome us. Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and knocks, and if we open the door, he comes in and he takes over and he makes a home in us by his spirit in our hearts. Jesus washed feet. Jesus gave up his life to provide us with the meal of the bread and the cup. Jesus' ministry was marked with greetings and hospitality. Right? So the sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet, who he just encountered there, he looked at her and said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It was a significant encounter. To the woman Jesus encountered at a, a well, a woman at a well in Samaria, he engaged her and offered her living water. To the man on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And you know, that wasn't just these characters in scripture. That's you and that's me. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul says, remember that you, that's Gentiles, that's every non-Jew, you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were hopeless and far from God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, Jesus has taken you from stranger to friend. You've been taken from orphan to adopted son or daughter. He has totally drawn you in. And we get to, uh, our ministry flows out of thankful, grateful response for those things. The way we greet one another is informed by the greetings we have received from Jesus. A greeting into the deepest relationship imaginable. A greeting leading to eternal life. And our hospitality is informed by the hospitality of Jesus taking up residence in our hearts and preparing a feast and a room for our eternal dwelling. Oh, how Jesus is hospitable to you and me. May we do the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this word. 
I personally find it challenging because I come home so many days um, ready to watch Netflix, (laughs) ready to just sit, ready to just try and catch up, um, feeling really spent. And I know that I share that sentiment with so many. And yet, Lord, I know also that um, those times around the table, really with anyone, truly engaging is one of the most life-giving gifts you have given to us. So Lord, I pray that we would find rest and find our rest in the rest that you provide and that out of um, hearts that live in response to you, we are able to provide those sanctuaries for those that you put in our care, that you put around us. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a people who are, are hospitable to one another, who start to put the roast in the oven again on a timer, who invite people home from church, who, who make plans to invite others in, to take people even from our church family here, from stranger to friend. Lord, I pray that you would help us grow in this. You help us greet each other well in our foyer, in a grocery store, in the hockey locker room. Lord, would you help us um, to do this in light of all that Christ has done for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.